You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll hear reflections from an expert in diversity and unconscious bias about the federal government's ban on diversity trainings for federal institutions. Unconscious bias, which is like, you know, here in like the federal government's eyes, unconscious bias is like a dirty word, you know. But the fact is that decades of science have shown that we have unconscious bias. And if we don't do something about it, it affects our decisions. And so if we want to make decisions that are strong decisions, if we want to make decisions that are clear decisions, we need to to add processes and structures uh, to disrupt bias in the process. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org. In September, news broke that diversity and inclusion trainings at two major research labs in the Bay Area were being suspended at the direction of the White House. President Trump issued an executive order characterizing trainings about racism, sexism, and white privilege as anti-American propaganda and the promotion of stereotypes. Federal employees and contractors are now prohibited from engaging in these types of trainings. We wanted to hear from someone who helps build diverse and inclusive workplaces about what the effects of this ban might be and what exactly happens in trainings. Hi, I am Dr. Lauren Aguilar. I am the president and founder of the Inclusion and Diversity Practice at Frechet. And we are a consulting practice that helps organizations become more inclusive, more diverse, helps create environments of belonging where each individual can feel respected, feel like they belong, feel valued, as well as can fully contribute as their authentic self. And we know from the research, we are very data-driven, that uh, when we create environments of diversity where all voices can be heard, that's where we have the most creativity, the most innovation, and it helps us all increase the bottom line. So all good things that we all want. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me. No problem. I'm honored to be here. So this shutdown from the federal government of diversity and inclusion training has been unfolding over several weeks. In September, UC National Labs stopped their training because of a directive from the federal government. And in late September, an executive order was issued barring federal employees and contractors from engaging in these kinds of trainings. And then more recently, in response to that order, the Justice Department canceled all DNI trainings. What was your first reaction when you initially heard about the cancellation of trainings um, at the national labs or just the order in general? My first reaction was to think back to the first time I read George Orwell's 1984. Hmm. I, this really felt like an Orwellian move to me. I was astounded. Um, I I couldn't believe that our government was banning learning, was banning uh, development that helps all individuals fully contribute to their organization. Um, I was was appalled and and frankly really angry and scared. It, It actually made me really nervous for our country. Scared of what? Well, that's a great question. I I think there's a lot of there is a lot of fear 
and a lot of misunderstanding about what diversity inclusion work is, um, mm-hmm. as well as even those who believe in diversity inclusion work, do trainings work? Or do they help or do they harm? So mm. there's a there's a lot of confusion out there, but there's also a lot of fear. If we if we start to talk about these things like social inequities, structuralized racism, unconscious bias at our place of work, there's a fear of like opening Pandora's box. Like this isn't really for the workplace. This, you know, this is an extracurricular activity or this is too fluffy or too emotional um, Mm -hmm. or these just aren't things that affect the workplace. They exist outside in society, but not in here, you know, in you can hear I'm using my like put on voice here here at our company, we don't see color Um, or, or like, you know, that's, that's political. And so we're not going to do it here. But what, what's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of doing diversity inclusion work writ large, let alone trainings and, or upskilling around it is that, that it's somehow separate from the work we know from decades of research now that when we have more diversity on teams, we we have a, a better bottom line <laughs> that that we companies that have more diversity actually like weather recessions better and are even profitable during recessions that um, they create better products that serve more people and that the employees of these companies are, are happier. There's more engagement, more retention and, and so it's not political. It's about doing good business. It's about taking care of our workforce. And so what's scary to me about this is making this a political move when this is about, one, caring for our people, and two, just doing good business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the federal government has now been calling these trainings un-American and labeling them as divisive and propaganda. What does that say to you? What is the federal government saying when it's labeling inclusion efforts as divisive anti-American propaganda? That is ludicrous to me. I know you can't see me right now, but my hands are on the top of my head and I'm looking up (laughs) at the ceiling and just going, why? Why? It's it's so infuriating and it's really that's why i feel like it's so orwellian it's like what the federal government is doing here is propaganda it's mm. i would argue it's absolutely the opposite banning diversity training is anti-american this this country is a country that encapsulates so many differences from all different dimensions of diversity seen and unseen in our workplaces, including in the federal government, we have people of all different races, ethnicities, genders, uh, disabilities, veteran status, LGBTQ. I, I mean, and and in cognitive differences, uh, like the neuro neuroscientific differences. Excuse me, neurological differences. Like there are just so many different ways that folks show up at work. And and to like blatantly say that we're not going to recognize that and we're not going to take that into account and we are going to ban any work that is 
mindful that we have difference and and also the the other end like not only that we have differences but that that's actually valuable like when you know when i when i hear sentiments like this like this is un-american it right there that's just a huge red flag like what i think of as being american is having the 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 choice and the freedom to to learn to learn across difference i mean we are uh we are essentially a country of of immigrants historically and aside from native americans who were displaced by those immigrants exactly and uh, my roots i'm i am a multiracial person i am half mexican and native american and half white and so Mm. my experience of being an american is both like being a privileged person who benefits from my whiteness and a person of color who has experienced systematic inequities in in my whole lineage of people as well as how that affects my experience today. And so, you know, I often sort of feel like the colonizer and the colonizee um, Mm -hmm. all at once. And, and, but that's being American. Like it's holding our history, the, the difficulties, as well as all the celebrations and, and, and really being able to take a bird's eye view and look at the fact that we are, we are a country of difference. We, we, we need to be able to recognize that. And so to turn a blind eye or call recognizing that, um, somehow evil or un-American is just, ridiculous to me it is absolutely ridiculous it makes no sense the executive order specifically says quote it shall be the policy of the united states not to promote race or sex stereotyping or scapegoating in the federal workforce or in the uniformed services and not to allow grant funds to be used for these purposes in addition federal contractors will not be permitted to inculcate such views in their employees end quote So let's talk about the actual content of these trainings, which, you know, the White House is describing in this way. What might the trainings you conduct include? What what is actually being (laughs) instilled in people here? What is what's on offer? It's it's such a great question. Like, what are these? Well, no one diversity and inclusion training is alike. There are so many different kinds. Right. Um, I'll tell you about the kind that we do, but uh, there are there are some that are a little bit more heart centered, that are about talking, dialoguing across difference. For example, there are others that are really data driven and science based, um, and then there are others who 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 pull from both of those areas. Um, the kinds of trainings that we do have a framework that's around like the head, the heart, and the hands. So we focus on the the science of inclusion and diversity. Like for example, the neuroscience of unconscious bias, mm-hmm. the science of stereotyping, how it lives in our brains, how we cannot escape it, um, but that we can create structures and tools and awareness in order to disrupt these processes. Um, and then there's like a heart centeredness for building awareness and, and recognizing um, that, that our, our lives are formed around our identity groups. So you know, one, one example of the, the way 
like an exercise that we sometimes do with companies is to have people list like their top five close friends and colleagues. And when they do that, people then look at their list and 95% of the time what they find is most people on their list share their gender, their race, the, the college they went to, their socioeconomic status. And, and then we talk about, okay, so how does this, this tendency for us to, to connect with in our social networks, people that are like us, then affect how our companies are built? Well, you know, there's this like very jargony term in, in sociology called homophily. It means like birds of a feather flock together. If <laughs> if we refer in others to our company, like a company is hiring and they say, you know, we want our in-house referrals. If we all refer just from our immediate network, we're just going to recreate the status quo. We're just going to create companies that create, that look exactly like they do right now. So yeah. we, there are there are ways of being human that we, we have unconscious bias that we tend to um, connect in our communities with others who are like us that, that prevent diversity and inclusion from thriving. And so we, we have to create structures and we have to give people tools. So the last part of our framework is like the hands. So the head, the heart, the hands, like the, um, the hands is about giving folks the tools to do that. So for example, like how do we run inclusive meetings or how do we recruit or hire more inclusively? Um, so like running inclusive meeting, we give folks simple, simple ideas, like send an agenda out for a meeting ahead of time. So it gives folks with different personality types, like introverts and extroverts, um, the time to to consider ideas before speaking up in a meeting or go around the room and ask everyone's opinion. Um, these are not very, um, these things are, are just really good ways of doing business to, to surface all ideas or, you know, in hiring, uh, we, we recommend that folks uh, use an interview protocol that, that everyone uses like structured interview questions and when you're you're asking folks to describe their experiences like have all interviewers ask the questions that will get behavioral answers versus like generalizations where we might just sort of go from our gut and be like I really like that person I think we're gonna hire mm. them mm -hmm. so it's it, it's about giving folks the tools for interacting with each other in ways that are more inclusive in the workplace. But it's also about putting structures into our really key people decisions so that we're making clear decisions. This is about making good people decisions. It's about making good business decisions. And so unconscious bias, which is like, you know, it, it, here in like the federal government's eyes, unconscious bias is like a dirty word, you know, but the fact is that decades of science have shown that we have unconscious bias. And if we don't do something about it, it affects our decisions. And so if we want to make decisions that are strong decisions, if we want to make decisions that are clear decisions, we need to to add processes and structures uh, to disrupt bias in the process. Um, so I'm just giving like bits and pieces about what a workshop might look like, um, but it, it really will help people understand how to run better teams, how to make better decisions. And that's about, yes, we're gonna talk about stereotypes. We're gonna talk about how our identities um, affect the way we might show up at work, 
but it's also, and that's really important, but it's also about giving folks the tools to, to do to do good work with one another. Yeah. In fact, it sounds like the exact opposite of promoting race or sex stereotyping in the workplace. Yeah, it really is because it's, um, and thank you for saying that, because it's really about acknowledging that we have stereotypes, that we have unconscious bias. So there's actually this great research, great in that it's really eye-opening. It's about colorblindness. So Mm. we we're taught from a really young age here in America that it's not polite, it's uh, it's not the politically correct thing to do to talk about race. We just don't talk about race. Mm-hmm. And there's research showing that when you espouse that idea of colorblindness, like a lot of companies say, we just don't see color here. Or a lot of individuals say, we're post-racial, or we are <laughs> like, or I don't see color. Well, the, the research shows that's not true. Like we do, it's a fundamental part of being a human is that we we see very basic attributes like race and, and gender and others. And um, when when we say we don't see color um, and when we truly believe that, it, research shows it actually leads us to be blind to when discrimination actually occurs. So uh, in organizations that, that say we don't see color here, that have this color blindness um, ethos, actually are shown to be um, less inclusive and have more discrimination. So, so folks from uh, more different backgrounds, um, in particular people of color, don't trust organizations that say we're colorblind. Yep. So what's what's important about this is is a move a move by the federal government to say we don't want to our employees to engage in trainings that discuss stereotypes um, is actually ad- antithetical to solving the problem. If yep. we turn a blind eye, if we don't bring these things into awareness and and put in place structures and processes to disrupt bias, we are going to have more discrimination. We're going to have more pay equity issues. We're going to have um, more issues like uh, folks suing their companies for um, whether the company is a federal government company or a private company. If we don't do this fundamental training, we, we're actually going to have a pop up of, of, of more issues around diversity and inclusion. I'm speaking with Dr. Lauren Aguilar, president and founder of the Inclusion and Diversity Practice at the consulting group Forche. I'm glad you bring up this idea of color blindness because the director of the Federal Office of Management and Budget wrote in a memo in early September that the purpose of these trainings is to indoctrinate participants with the idea that virtually all white people contribute to racism and that it's racist to believe that America is the land of opportunity. This seems a bit related to me to the sort of, you know, privilege of being able to say, oh, I don't see race because you don't have to think about it. But what do you make of that, this accusation um, that it's indoctrination for those reasons? Oh, I got, I'm like, oh, I got to take a breath before this one. Uh, <laughs> sure, take your time. <laughs> like, a lot there. <laughs> I know, there's so much there. It, so... 
when we look at the decades of research on implicit bias or unconscious bias, those, those terms can be used interchangeably, we know that all people have unconscious bias. If you are a human, you have bias. What's interesting, if you look historically, is that the, the, the rates of explicit endorsement of bias, those rates have gone down since like the, the 60s and 70s. So you see those really dropping. So people like don't explicit explicitly of, of... say, like, I think one race is better than the other. Right. But our implicit uh, bias has stayed the same. For decades. So, I mean, it, 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 to be totally fair to the research, it has gone down some. But what is really interesting is that all people have bias. So there are these really fundamental workplace bias studies that, that send resumes out to real job postings. And what they find is that, for example, uh, resumes that have a black name on it have to send 50% more resumes than those with a white name attached to the resume. Mm -hmm. And that's equivalent to the black candidate needing eight more years of experience to get the job. Wow. Eight more years. It's the same exact resume. The researchers just changed the name. (laughs) So it, it is ludicrous to me to say that raising awareness about stereotypes Um, is in indoctrination. Indoctrination is folks who are who are telling Americans that we are not racist or denying science. I mean, here's the thing. I'm talking to you about research. I'm talking about the science. If we're denying science, then uh, we're just stuck. You know, it's, it's sort of a non sequitur here. If if we believe in science, we know that stereotypes exist, that discrimination exists. And that we're all part of the problem. Those same studies that I just told you about, those resume studies, have been done globally. They, they are, we can repeat that result over and over again. It just depends on the particular stereotypes in that country. So like they've done in Australia and it's Aboriginal names or Asian names that have the same, same rates of not getting a call back uh, because of uh, the stereotypes associated with that ethnicity. In Europe, it is more Middle Eastern names. So the fact is, if, if you're human, you have bias. And this isn't about black versus white. Even those folks who are black have bias uh, when we're talking about gender. It's like women who are reviewing resumes, people of color who are re- reviewing resumes like or reviewing work. Like we, They all show the same bias. If I'm going to be really specific, um, which I think it's important to be, uh, when it's the target group, so that case, like the resume study, if we're using that as an example, if you're a reviewer who is black, you are likely to have slightly less bias because you have more experience with folks from varied backgrounds, and and you can see that there is like uh, in your in your life experience, you've had more exposure to folks from that group. So the the headline here is that we all have bias. It doesn't matter what group you are from. 
and having exposure to folks from different backgrounds actually is one of the only things that can can lower that implicit or or unconscious bias. The Chronicle reported this story back in early September about the trainings being suspended at national labs. So they were looking specifically at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs and Lawrence Livermore National Labs. And those laboratories, they conduct unclassified research in a variety of disciplines. Berkeley Labs director told employees that leadership remains dedicated to its diversity principles. But what does it mean for these initiatives to be shut down at major scientific research institutions with large and diverse staffs? What's being lost here? First of all, we're losing innovative potential. Um, if, if we are not creating organizations that welcome a variety of folks from different backgrounds, and we're not creating a, an inclusive environment where each individual can feel like they belong, where they feel safe in their own skin um, at the organization, showing up as their full self. What we're going to lose is, well, first of all, we're not going to have high rates of retention. So for the, all my HR folks out there know this. Um, when we have high levels of engagement, and high levels of belonging, those actually, whenever we do an engagement survey inside a workforce, those are the two most highly correlated aspects of the employee experience. When you feel like you belong, when you feel like you can be valued and respected as your full authentic self, whatever race you are, um, that is highly correlated with your level of engagement in your work. So one, we're, we're gonna lose folks' engagement in their work which then it leads to a, a domino effect of retention. So we're going to have a lot of folks leaving these labs because especially people of color and other folks uh, who, who represent different dimensions of diversity, they're going to leave these labs. They're going to go to the private sector. So we're going to lose those great minds, all those decades of training. That's going to be taken out of these labs and they're going to go elsewhere. Um, we're going to have people leave the industry. We know, for example, we look at gender in, in STEM fields, science, technology, mm -hmm. engineering, math fields, the, the rates of women leaving the entire industry are much, much higher. Um, the same goes for people of color. They leave the entire industry. So it's not only that like a particular lab it is losing out on that innovative potential and that they're going to you know, have to pay turnover costs. All these mm. things are very real and very important. But we're actually losing the innovative potential of America. The people that have been on career paths dedicated to, in this case, we're talking about these labs, like dedicated to the science, to the process of discovering truth, innovating, solving the world's most important problems, we're going to lose them in this industry. And to me, that's what's un-American. Well, same question for the other area where the Chronicle has reported that the Justice Department is canceling diversity trainings, and that's for immigration justices. I mean, what effects might it have to suspend inclusion trainings for judges who decide on immigration cases? Oh, this one, I mean, this is so tough. This is so tough. 
So, Although I do want to interject real quick that just to clarify that the the federal judiciary, those judges are independent, but immigration judges are employees of the Justice Department, which has just shut down these trainings. Thank you. That's so important. That's so important. Um, so just one example from the research that is not directly related to immigration, but I think the, the point about um, how shutting down trainings can affect um, the, the outcomes of a court case of, mm-hmm. of, of um, judicial decision making. So the research by Jennifer Eberhardt has shown that the darker your skin, the more likely you are to receive a death sentence wow. for the same exact case, um, the same exact um, crime. So what this shows is that when there is latitude in decision making, that bias can can affect the outcome of the defendant. So it's it's really important that we teach folks who are making these incredibly important decisions about immigration, about any other case, that bias can play a part so that they can check their own bias so that we can think about how um, how juries how juries make decisions, how judges make decisions. And I am not an expert, and I do not claim to be an expert in the judicial system. But there's very basic uh, basic principles and science of bias that we see play out in the judicial judicial system, which which leads to structuralized inequities across different races. So this is to say that I am, I'm very nervous um, to see education being taken away or blocked from the very people that are going to control who stays in this country, who goes, and then in other decision-making, who, who does prison time, for how long, and on up to death sentencing. Well, that is a very frightening concept and and disturbing. Um, we are running out of time, though. I, I just I guess I wanted to give you a chance to talk about inclusion initiatives that are ongoing because this is the federal government, you know, attacking diversity and inclusion initiatives, but they are still happening elsewhere. Um, I wanted to see if there's work that you see elsewhere that's um, really advancing inclusive workplaces and movements that you want to highlight. Absolutely. Thank you for asking that. Here's where I, I see private organization, private sector organizations really stepping up. In, in my own practice, we have more incoming requests for support than we ever have before. And so out of the, the pain and the frustration of this current moment, there is that silver lining that private organizations who who believe in in uh, inclusion, who believe in the power of diversity, are are really putting commitments forward in ways that they never have before. So what I see happening right now are is work around one training, which we've been talking a lot about, diversity inclusion training, especially for leaders, uh, especially for managers who are like the culture carriers at organizations. I also see a lot of 
uh, internal committees forming. So, you know, not every organization has a head of diversity and inclusion, but employees and, and leadership are coming together to say, we want to do something about this. Where do we start? And so we've been doing a lot of work with these grassroots um, committees to use what we call it design thinking and the science of inclusion and diversity to help innovate. So it's really about linking arms with folks who are inside their organizations and really understand their culture well and, and using practices that use, you could say like an empathic perspective. So when we want to start a new initiative that might be something about becoming a more anti-racist organization or we want to come up with a new hiring process or a new promotion process or come up with a new tool or, or perhaps form a new community group like an employee resource group, you know, the bringing together employees who, who know their culture really well with folks who understand the science and who understand the evidence-based best practices that are going on out there, that's where I see some of the most innovative work happening. I'll give one quick example of um, some of the, the, the work that has come out about uh, come out of these types of we call them like accelerators. Um, we we worked first with Airbnb and then with eBay on something we call a calibration card. So, you know, when after we do performance reviews, leaders and managers get together and they decide who gets promoted. And these you know, sort of backroom meetings are absolutely critical to to the, the, the leadership of the organization, to the equity of the organization. But the issue is that when groups get together, there are all sorts of biases that come into play. So, right. you know, everyone has their own individual unconscious bias. And then we get groups together, there's things like groupthink, you know, everyone's sort of aligning <laughs> their thinking. Yeah. There's um, recency bias, like only remembering something someone did last week versus six months ago. <laughs> Um, or anchoring on the highest status person in the room, like, okay, I go with what the boss said. Um, And so these are critical, critical moments for ensuring equity. But in reality, there's a ton of bias that, that happens in those rooms. So in these accelerators, we've come up with a tool, we call it like a just in time tool, like a in a particular moment, right when bias might creep into the system, we can we can block it or disrupt it. So this this tool is about like on one side it's like a mini unconscious bias training. So on one side it says all the different ways a bias might come into play. Just little reminders there. And the other side this card, a physical card that people hold in their hand, um, it gives folks. Uh, the tools to address it in the moment. It's coming from the science of how do we make clear decisions that 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 um, bias uh, where bias doesn't creep in. So, for example, like if we were in this meeting together and you said, "Well, I just I just really think he's high potential for leadership," I'd look at my trusty card and go, "Oh, okay, red flag. I think that might be biased because that's a generalization." And then you'd say, um, "Well." can you give me an example of one time that he demonstrated that leadership ability? And so it's so simple, but it's a tool in the moment, especially in a group decision-making moment, to call for an observable piece of evidence that that helps describe that gut feeling or that generalization. And when we go off observable evidence, we're more likely to make clear decisions with uh, less bias. So that's, you know, there are all sorts of things that are going on 
uh, in the private sector, like equity assessments, um, inclusive culture assessments, uh, trainings. And I think the, the real innovative work right now is around uh, these tools that that really thread right into the moment where important decisions are made to help block bias and, and make more inclusive uh, teamwork. Well, this has been a somewhat disturbing but really enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much. Really happy to be here with you. That was Dr. Lauren Aguilar, president and founder of the Inclusion and Diversity Practice at the consulting group Forche. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.